Hebrews chapter 11, and we're going to continue our series today on faith, the firm foundation. We'll get the sound sorted out in just a minute. How many of you like coffee? I don't like coffee. I, now listen, 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 listen. I'm good at ping pong. Okay. I play once a year ping pong, okay, on the Super Bowl night. That's all it is. So I have tried everything. I have tried. I tried in high school to like coffee. I tried in college to like coffee. I tried in grad school to like coffee. I've tried in ministry to like coffee. I have wanted to like coffee. I like the smell of coffee. You all look so cool when you drink coffee. I wish I could look that way too. Instead, I just have this uncanny ability to wake up and just start my day without any caffeine. So I don't know how that, how you feel about that, but so I, but one, one thing that I, I really, I, I remember is when I was in grad school at DePaul, um, so <laughs> we had this sort of common area, and it was sort of like the, the city commons, you know, and everybody would kind of come and throw around their ideas at the theater school where I was a part of, and, and one of the things that was just really a hot topic back in like 2006, 2007 was everybody was hating on Starbucks. You know how, like, if you really liked coffee, and some of you might probably still feel this way. I don't know. I'm not in the coffee, no. Uh, But if you really like coffee, then Starbucks is kind of like the McDonald's of coffee. You know, it's like roast your own, go get it somewhere else or whatever. So there was all this, there was all this... uh, dislike directed Starbucks way. And I I never obviously had any experience with it because I tried to like coffee and couldn't. All I knew was that a bunch of kids who were like 19 and 20 sitting around reading the New York Times and wearing Gap were talking about sticking it to the man by not going to Starbucks. (laughs) And so because I didn't like coffee, but I wanted to be able to talk with people, I sort of uh, co-opted the position as well that, yeah, I was against Starbucks. Of course, everybody's against Starbucks. Why would you go there? Come on. I mean, but when, whenever I was pressed on why, I didn't have an answer. I just said some vague moral reason. And I think there's a danger when we preach and when we learn together about faith that we can slip into the same kind of thinking. That faith becomes this sort of like ambiguous, amorphous, moral principle. It's like the thing. It's like I got my faith. You know, when someone gets interviewed after uh, a a big game or an actor gets interviewed or somebody's doing something or a politician, they're like, well, I have my faith. I I stand firm on my faith and I fall back on my faith. And and that all sounds really great. Just like it sounded great for me to say, yeah, totally, Starbucks, forget it. Who goes there? (laughs) And I think it's important for us to remember as as we're concluding this series today on faith, the firm foundation, that we don't talk about faith as a buzzword. We don't talk about faith as a principle. Faith is not just a thing that it's really, really good that we have. Faith is only meaningful based upon who or what the faith is in. Faith is only meaningful based upon who or what the faith is in. And we have to stand unapologetically and firmly on the fact that our faith is in Jesus. Our faith is in Jesus Christ. That's a faith that I want to celebrate and dive into and live with and chew on and read about others who have walked with God by faith, but not because faith is cool, but because who my faith is in is meaningful. Does that make sense? 
So I just want to, as we conclude our, this series today, I, I just want to say that from the top. We're not glorifying a concept. We're not glorifying an idea. We're saying our faith is in Jesus. And that's why we can have this conversation. Steve has done such a great job these last three weeks laying such a great uh, groundwork in this series uh, as we've studied faith. We, we learned a few weeks ago as we've been going through Hebrews chapter 11, uh, Steve started us off reading, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And this is what the ancients were commended for. And he spoke about it's by faith that we wait and we take a posture of believing God and waiting on him and trusting in him. And then he spoke about Abel and how Abel understood, had an understanding of what it meant to be approved by God on the basis of just simply having faith in him. And last week, we learned about Enoch. Enoch, everybody's favorite Old Testament character, right? You know, those two, those two verses. Oh, he's my, he's my guy. But Enoch walked with God. That's how he's described. That's a pretty nice way to be described in Scripture, doesn't get the play that maybe some other Old Testament men and women get, but he walked with God faithfully, and God took him so he didn't experience death, and it's by faith that we walk with God. And I just want to say, I'm really not buttering Steve up for the ping pong jokes, but if you've taken one thing from these last three weeks, if you've taken one thing, I would say, and I think I can speak for Steve when I say this, I would say that my hope is that you have taken the fact that faith is believing God. Faith is believing God. Again, going back to this idea that faith is not a moral principle, it's not a moral compass, it's not a really cool thing that I keep with me and I make sure I don't leave it home. I don't just have my faith. Faith is believing God. And what we've seen as we've been in Hebrews chapter 11 is we've seen some of the results of believing God. And we're going to see more today. But I want to do something kind of potentially heretical. Watch out. Don't tweet. I want us to turn, as as you're in Hebrews 11, and we're going to read it together up to where we're going to be discussing today in verse 7. We're going to be hearing about Noah, who got a lot more play than Enoch does. A lot more stuff happened. But we're going to read this passage together up to verse 7. And wherever it says faith, I'm just going to read believing God. Is that okay? So let's read it together. It'll be behind me. Let's start in Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now, believing God is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Believing God is what the ancients were commended for. By believing God, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. By believing God, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By believing God, he was commended as righteousness when God spoke well of his offerings. And by his belief in God, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. By believing God, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And listen to this. And without believing God, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who who comes to him must believe that he exists 
and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. It makes a lot of sense. Faith is believing God. Verse 7, today, by faith, by believing God, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his belief in God, his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. All right. We're going to spend some time on Noah today in verse 7. And I want to just say from the outset, just keep this phrase in mind. Let's follow the righteousness. Follow the righteousness today. We're going to hear about by faith we are righteous. By faith we are righteous. Let's pick up uh, verse 7. I'm going to, uh, again, and let's read it again. I'm going to zoom a little bit here. By faith, by his belief in God, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, whatever that means, built an ark to save his family, and by his faith, he condemned the world, that's uncomfortable, and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. That I would like to have explained. We're going to do those things. Let's talk about Noah a little bit. Noah, the account of Noah is not very far into your Bible. Round about Genesis 6, we hear about a man by the name of Noah. And round about Genesis 6, there's only been five other chapters up to this point. Things in creation are not great. They've kind of gone downhill really quickly. So much so to the point that after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and the resulting expulsion from the garden and the fact that then creation is cursed and there's been a new and different but altogether real distance between God and his creation, no more what Steve described a couple of weeks ago or last week about walking with God in the cool of the day that Adam and Eve got to do, that's done. That's done. And it's a necessary separation, not because of an indignant God, but just simply because of a reality of holiness and unholiness. There's, a, there's just a defined separation. It's not meant to be a cold equation. It's just true. Well, that has started to take the trajectory that you would expect. And by the time we get to Genesis 6, God looks upon his creation and he is fed up. He is fed up. And he even begins to regret having made what he made. Can you imagine that? The opening chapters of scripture are so beautiful about how God created everything. And what does he say that each thing is? Good. It's good. And not five chapters later, God looks down and goes, none of it is good. Turn with me to Genesis 6, or it'll be right behind me, so just maybe stay where you are. I'm going to pick it up in verse 5. This is how the Lord feels about creation at this point. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. And listen, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. 
And then there's this little sentence right at the end, verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. If you've, if you've remotely grown up in church at all or ever sat in a Sunday school class, you're very familiar with the account of Noah. But somehow, I think, I don't know that we always catch just how dire it was. The Lord regretted what he had made, what he had said was good. He had made us in his image. Man and woman, he created them, it says. Let us make them in our likeness, the triune God said. And in the midst of this wickedness, I regret, I regret it. I'm going to undo it and wash it away. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So what happens? Well, God comes to Noah. We see that both in Genesis and in Hebrews. And it's a a long account. It it encompasses Genesis 6, 7, and chapter 8. So I'm not going to read all whatever 75 verses of that for you. But God comes to Noah and he lets Noah know what's going to happen. And he gives Noah instructions. And he tells Noah, I'm going to save you, your wife, your sons, and your sons' wives so that you may repopulate the earth. I am quite literally hitting the reset button. Can you imagine getting that message from God? You're going to what? But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And God began to enumerate the ways in which Noah was to obey him and enumerate the ways in which Noah was to believe him. And we see, we see certain statements throughout the account of Noah. Statements like, Noah walked faithfully with God. The end of verse 6, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Just a little bit into chapter 7, and Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. And then, and then a little more into chapter 7, when God closes up the ark, God, uh, Noah had brought, every, uh, brought a male and female of every living thing as God had commanded him. We start to see what I want to submit to you is a result of believing God. And a result of believing God is obeying God. A result of believing God is obeying God. And it's not just an obedience. It's not a, it's not a ho-hum, surface-level obedience. If you have kids, or if you've ever been a kid, there we go, you know what ho-hum obedience is. I've had plenty of ho-hum obedience given to me already since about 5.30 this morning. <laughs> and it's obedience in... The action, and not much else. It's a dragging your feet obedience. Well, if Noah drags its feet, he's dragging it through mud and then a flood, okay? He's obeying God. And what does the writer of Hebrews describe about his obedience? By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Because I, I think personally, that we could have gotten the point across here to say, by faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, built an ark to save his family, because that's what God told him to do. And we would be getting the point that there was an obedience here. But the author of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, very clearly puts those three words, in holy fear. You know what Psalm 128 says about the fear of the Lord? It says, blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in obedience to him. 
You see, it's not just obedience. It's a walking. It's a lifestyle. It's, a, it's an inspired, intentional, relational obedience. It's an obedience that's not actually possible without believing the one who's calling you to obey. You all, everybody in this room, myself included, have all obeyed someone you don't believe. You probably go the speed limit. You're obeying somebody. You're obeying something. You're, 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 you're obeying something that you don't stand on per se. You're not going to take a bullet for the city ordinance of the city of Chicago. But you're obeying it. But Noah's obedience is described as something different. It's described as in holy fear. Noah built an ark. And that word fear is, it's not a 2017 word. It's not like, oh man, God is going to zap me. No, it's a reverence. It's a relational, adoration-based. I have been given uh, 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 something to obey by my Lord that I love and that I believe above everything else. And so as ridiculous as it sounds, going back to your flannel graph days, making an ark in the desert, as absurd as it sounds, I'm going to build the ark. And as God gives me specificity and everything is, you know, your, your life verse, you know, make it three cubits high and four cubits high, And all those verses that God is so specific. And Noah did everything just as the Lord commanded him. That's an obedience that is rooted in belief. Because believing God necessarily results in obeying God with holy fear. And I want to say this. I, I, I think, you know, Noah... We could obviously preach for a long time on just the account of Noah. I won't. But we could. And we could unpack a lot of that. But for the sake of, for the sake of what we're focusing on, the idea of faith believing God, and the idea of following the righteousness, which we'll get to in a moment, we have to understand that when we believe God, and it results in obeying God, that's necessarily going to do something to the relationship that you and I have to the world. It's necessarily going to do something to the relationship that you and I have to the world. It changes it. You see, Noah, like you and I, was in the midst of a world that was not obedient to God. Some of you read those chapter, those verses in Genesis 6 where every inclination of every heart was all evil all the time, and you're like, that's now. That's now. And we all agree and disagree on different ways that it's now. So thank you. We'll just put that aside for a minute. Okay? But it's not like we live in a time where we're all skating with obedience to God. So when you and I reckon ourselves as believing God in faith, and that results in obeying God, we are set at odds by definition, with the world. And two things happen that are described in verse 7. Two things happen. By his faith, by his belief in God, he condemned, Noah did, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. Let's look at those two things. Because isn't that a little itchy to hear that Noah condemned the world? I'm not. I thought there was no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And I thought that the verse that follows John 3.16, the most unknown verse in all the Bible, John 3.17, says that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but rather to save the world through him. Nobody puts John 3.17 up when they're kicking a field goal. Um, um, it's, all, it's always John 
But Jesus himself said that. So what does this mean? Because when you read the Genesis account, there's no point. There's never a point where God says to Noah, now take a seat in judgment, because that's how God would sound, and pick up this gavel and condemn the world. We never see that. And we can presume that the writer of Hebrews knows the account of Noah. So what does it mean that as Noah, by faith, by believing God, having obeyed in holy fear, condemns the world? I would submit to you that it means this, that when you and I believe God and we obey God, condemnation that already is present is revealed and brought to the surface. Before God ever speaks to Noah, the world is condemned. Listen to how God talked about the world. Every inclination of the human heart is evil all the time. I'm going to wipe it out. God hasn't even talked to Noah yet. The world is condemned. And then God brings Noah into the picture. Everything brought up by the world, everything thought of by the world. You guys okay? I'm not meaning to be too serious. Preaching on condemnation. Awesome. (laughs) Hit that podcast. Let's do it. But everything, everything brought up by the world, everything conceived of the world, everything that comes from the world, the the, the best of the best of the best of the world is going to have a twinge of being rooted in condemnation. We can't uncondemn ourselves. Why? Because there is already the necessary and very real simple distance of holy God and unholy people. There's an insidious lie that gets rooted a little bit in in church thought today, and I'm gonna tell you what it is. It's the idea that God has knee-jerk grace and that grace, what grace means is that it is just really cool. It's just all good. It's just, don't worry about it. It's just that in Genesis 6, what God should have said was, every inclination of man's heart is all evil all the time, and uh, I just love him so much. And it's okay. Wait a minute, stop. I'm sorry. When the prophet Isaiah in chapter 6, I'm fired up about this thing. When the prophet Isaiah in chapter 6 gets taken up into the heavenly vision, and he makes a startling realization He sees the train of the robe of the Lord filling the temple. He sees seraphim covered with eyes and wings flying everywhere, echoing to each other all the time about the holiness of God. And let me tell you this. Isaiah does not say, I am really glad that God is gracious and this is all good. His first inclination, his first words, woe to me. Because I'm a man of unclean lips from an unclean people. I am done. The part of the gospel, the part of grace that makes sense is condemnation because we're separated from God. Then it's the necessary result of sinfulness and a sinless holy creator. That's the part that should make sense to us. The equal sign follows very naturally. So when Noah condemns the world, God uses Noah. Noah partners with God in obedience to bring a light to, to shed upon the reality of that condemnation already exists. Every solution, every framework, every ounce of what the world does, the way, we, the way we talk, our ideals, the way we solve, the way we vote, the way we demonstrate, the way we speak and think and relate is all rooted in some aspect of condemnation. 
The great philosopher Oz Guinness in his book, The Dust of Death, it's a real inspiring book, (laughs) writes, he calls it the striptease of humanism. This idea that humanity can in and of itself solve its own condemnation. And boy, we've gotten good at it. Boy, some things just sound so awesome. But they're always rooted in a twinge of condemning someone else. It's past the condemnation. And if I can somehow get you to carry a little more condemnation than me, then I'm less condemned. It's why you've all watched Jerry Springer. Come on. How do you feel? You feel less condemned than the dude who just went through 15 paternity tests. You feel less condemned than that guy. That's why you watch it. But it's what we do. And it's the same reason we structure ourselves politically the way we do, socially the way we do, ideologically the way we do. It's all a striptease of humanism to try to solve it. But condemnation is irrevocable from our state in the world outside of the holiness of God. This does get better. (laughs) Because that's not where the writer of Hebrews stops. And we see that God is swift and just and justified in his response to the world. But we also see that God is swift and just and justified in his response to Noah. And that's why the writer of Hebrews can say, not only by his faith Noah condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, uh, condemned the world, but we can also say, and became heir of the righteousness That is in keeping with faith. Now here is where we begin to get a picture of how how the journey, the impossible, wonderful, scandalous, illegal journey from unrighteous and condemned back to righteous happens. Because it does happen. And God makes a way for it to happen. And the gateway from condemnation to righteousness in the economy of God who gets to set the way back. The gateway is faith. Not a concept of faith. Not a Hallmark card faith. Not a post-Super Bowl interview, I knew we'd do it faith. Faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus. Don't turn there, but Romans 3. That it, as much time as you can spend in Romans, do it. It is, an, it is the Apostle Paul's opus to, the transfer of, uh, of, to our transfer from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light and just how absurdly glorious it is. But after the Apostle Paul takes about six or seven verses, all quoting the Old Testament to talk about the abject unrighteousness, condemnation present in the world, he says, but now... This righteousness, verse 22 of chapter 3, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. This faith, this righteousness is given by faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. In Noah, we begin to see that Noah is an heir to a righteousness that would not be completed for thousands of years, but that you and I are heir to the completeness of now. And we also see that when Paul writes in Galatians 3 and in Galatians 5 that righteousness is by faith, we see that it's always been by faith. It's always been by faith. 
Because God gives righteousness, reckons righteousness to the one who believes in him. That is what faith is. That is the scandal part of the gospel that actually doesn't compute, that actually doesn't make sense, but it also reminds us that grace is not something, salvation is not something where God just says, ah, it's cool. No, God says, you are reckoned as righteous. And the distance of sinful people, holy God, is eclipsed because the righteous stand before the Lord. And you and I are made righteous by faith in Jesus Christ, given to all. What a, what a just delicious picture of what was to come. And I love that the writer of Hebrews later says, these, these, these guys, they all walked in believing God and didn't even see all the fulfillment of this. And this is not, you know, Hebrews 11 often gets called what? The Faith Hall of Fame. There you go. Somebody's been in church a long time. <laughs> the Faith Hall of Fame. You know what? I, here's, I, I get that, but here's, here's something. I, I told you before, I used to wait tables. I did fine dining, and I waited on a lot of really cool people, uh, some of which were athletes who are in their respective sports Hall of Fames. And let me tell you, when they walked in the room, there was instantly a distance between me and them. There was clearly a reason why Michael Jordan is a Hall of Famer because when he shakes my hand, his index finger goes to here. <laughs> and the things that that man can do with a basketball, my, my 5'11", 190 self is just never going to do. We need to be careful here that when we think of these men and women here in Hebrews 11, that we don't distance them and put them in a faith hall of fame that is inaccessible to us. Because actually, what God is doing is using these people to simply show the result of believing him. By believing God, we wait. By believing God, we are approved. By believing God, we walked. By, by believing God, Condemnation is realized and righteousness comes up alongside to say it is free for all of those who believe. That's the scandal of the gospel. It's not inaccessible. It's an invitation. Yes? I would argue, if you want to get all C.S. Lewis and go heaven science fiction, that if we ever sit with Noah, I have not been to heaven. I don't know how it's going to be. Please just don't get mad at me. But if we ever talk to Noah, I bet Noah is going to have you in his faith hall of fame because you were on this side of the completed work of Jesus. And he wants to know what was it like? Wow, you lived your life. You lived your life where Jesus had completed his work and you were filled with the Holy Spirit and indwelt and you walked in that kind of relationship to God and plus God never flooded the earth again, which is pretty cool. I need to bring this into land, and I'm so far off my notes that it's not even funny. <laughs> but I will say this. I think, I think this series has, if, if, I can, if I can humbly close this series by saying two things to us. First of all, the, the, the stark contrast between condemnation and righteousness. It's so, it's so hopeless But the privilege of the church is to say, it's actually not hopeless. It's actually 
so scandalously fixed. It's so scandalously repaired. And in that way, our message should always be the gospel. Our message should always be the gospel. And all others, it is not the gospel plus this, this, and this. It is not the gospel minus this, this, and this to get a little more comfortable. The gospel necessarily brings, brings to light condemnation, and people will reject it. You're going to feel like an argument loser. Cable news is going to talk about you in a certain way. You cool with that? You're going to be a little out of step with this or that ideology or cause. Or you may vote this way or march that way or think this way or relate this way. And you know what? The gospel has to be our message because anything less is rooted in some twinge of condemnation. Sorry if that's hard or harsh. I hope you'll come up and talk to me after. But anything else is rooted in some, some bit of condemnation. Our message must be the gospel because it is the scandal of the gospel that by faith in Jesus Christ, this righteousness, this righteousness is available to all who believe. End of story. Our message must be the gospel. And then we must know too that all through the New Testament, one thing comes back again and again, and that is this, that the righteous live by faith. Now, hang on. We just, spent, we just spent a month talking about faith is believing God. Faith, our firm foundation. What, what our, our interaction with Jesus, believing in him, and that is faith. Now, get this. The righteousness of God is given to us by faith, and the righteous, that's you and me, will now not just have believed, but will live by faith, which is believing God. The righteous will live by believing God. And we are going to take the better part of the next seven, eight weeks, and we're going to study the next man that comes up in the faith, quote-unquote, hall of fame. It's the man, Abraham. And we're going to have a series that's going to be called Promised, Believing a Faithful God. And we're going to talk about what it means for those of us who have been reckoned as righteous to walk in faith. That is, Walk, the righteous will live by believing God. And we're going to see where Abraham did it well. We're going to see where Abraham fell on his face. And we're going to see that Abraham is not a distant Hall of Fame candidate. He is a bearer of an invitation to you and me to walk the same way. Because we stand in the same righteousness. It's said of Abraham in, in Genesis 15. Abraham believed God. And God credited it to him as righteousness. That's where we're going to be for the next few weeks. I hope you're excited. I'm excited. I'm super excited. Day to day, believing God. We're going to respond. I feel like the best way to respond is to share in communion together as a family. Also, the communion stuff's out, so we're going to do it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> have, to, have to hit the humor button there for a few minutes to let some of the tension out. I hope, uh, in just a moment, Debs is setting it out. I hope that as you come and you share in communion, we don't take this as a... Uh, as just a, a rote exercise. We take it as one who can walk and say, Jesus completed this work and I stand righteous because I believe God. 
because I believe God. Rachel's going to come up and play for us. So if you would, uh, just stand. You can come down these two aisles and come and get the bread and the cup and then take it back to your seat and we'll take it together in just a moment.